as a parent, one of the things you have to figure out, uh, some of you are going to nod in a minute, uh, one of the things you have to figure out if you are blessed with more than one uh, child is how in the world you are going to give each child the same uh, amount of love and attention as when you had only one, right? Uh, and if you're the firstborn, like me, you experience this a certain way from the other end of this. I'm the oldest child in my sort of nuclear family. And so when I was eight years old, I had to figure out how to trust that my parents weren't just going to like move on from me to my younger sister. Uh, although when it came to rules later on when we were teenagers, it does feel like that's what happened. Um, but if you're the younger sibling, then you don't know about this struggle because uh, you don't have that experience. And if you're the middle child, I don't really know how to help you. Um, sorry. But, but now as a parent, I know that was the half the joke, right? You're forgotten about. That's the whole thing. But now as a parent, right, I've realized that it's a good thing, a healthy thing for me to remind my older daughter in really specific ways that I still love her just as much as I did. In fact, even more, right? Somehow God just does that. Uh, he grows your love. And so yesterday she came with me to do some grocery shopping. And after we finished that, we went and grabbed lunch together, right? Because we're going to go to Chipotle after we shop. Um, and during that lunch, we got into a conversation uh, about how uh, when she was little like her sister is now, uh, and, and she just sort of was, I've had this experience more than once, but she's kind of like amazed that I remember the details that I do. And I'm like, okay, first of all, I'm not, it's not that long ago. I'm not that old. I don't forget that stuff that quick. But second of all, um, we just really ended up talking about um, the reality that as a good dad, as a good parent, as we all strive to be, not perfectly, we grow in our love and we don't forget about our kids. This is a conversation I have, especially with our older daughter. I'm not going to forget you somewhere, right? And, and so that's a struggle sometimes. And if that is true for us as faulty human parents, how much more is it true, right? Jesus said this, if you can give good gifts as evil as you are as parents, how much more can your father who in heaven who is in heaven do that? And how much more is it true for God when it comes to his people, the church, that he doesn't forget about us as the big C church, but any one of local expressions of church either. God is with us. And so if you've been following along at all for the series, you know that what we see in Acts chapters 1 through 11 is that there's sort of this flow of God's grace sort of flowing wider and wider as the chapters go on, right? And this is a fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which is a sort of calling card for us as a movement, the alliance right now. What we're a part of is our denomination. Uh, we are an Acts 1-8 family. And what is Acts 1-8? It's a promise from Jesus to his church that you will, quote, be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus said. This is what you're going to be. And as we go on through the book of Acts, we're seeing that being fulfilled in sort of wider and wider uh, movements of God's grace. And so what we see in those chapters is that this grace begins to move outside of the Jerusalem church first when Philip preaches to the Samaritans. You may remember that. And then it moves even further out when he shares Jesus with the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, and of course, then we have the incredible moment when Cornelius and Again, remember, his entire household, they all are Gentiles. They all hear the gospel and they respond. This is amazing stuff. And then finally, as we covered over the last week or so, week or two in this series, God's grace really breaks out of Jerusalem when the gospel of Jesus is preached in Antioch. 
And Antioch becomes a church. There's a church at Antioch. Amazing. And we're going to hear more from Antioch. And so uh, here's what you notice as you read Acts. From the end of Acts chapter 12 on, from the end of where we're going to be today through the end of the book, attention turns completely to now the Gentile world. Antioch now becomes the center and not Jerusalem anymore. So Antioch now becomes the sending church from which missionary journeys uh, are, are sent out. But before completely shifting our focus to the Gentile ministry, uh, the narrator of Acts, the Apostle Luke, who's writing this, takes the opportunity in chapter 12 to show us sort of two little vignettes, little glimpses of God's working on behalf of the church in Jerusalem. Right, The two things specifically he records are Peter's miraculous deliverance from prison and then the death of Herod. Of course, mixed right in with James losing his life because that's how it is in God's church. Bad things happen. We live in a broken world. Now, why does Luke do this? Why does he give us these two little peeks into uh, God at work on behalf of the church in Jerusalem? Well, I think he does it so that partly the church at Jerusalem and any readers of Acts, like you and I later on, uh, won't begin to think that God's care for his oldest church child, if you will, right, the church at Jerusalem, that that, that care had diminished at all. God, God hasn't forgotten about the church at Jerusalem and just moved on. That's not how it works. The incredible ways that God sort of intervenes that Luke records here are meant to remind the church of Jerusalem, and again, you and I, that God cared about them, God loved them, but also to remind them and to remind you and I that they have access through the Holy Spirit to God's authority and power. And this is something you and I, if you trust Jesus, have access to as well. Now, chapter 12 is as much for us as it was for the church at Jerusalem. It's a powerful reminder. God hasn't forgotten anybody. Maybe you came in here today thinking God forgot you. Well, God can't forget or he doesn't, he's not God anymore. Right? That's the theological answer, but that doesn't help when you're struggling. What helps when you're struggling is just to be reminded and gently told, hey, God hasn't forgotten about you in your circumstances either. So we need reminders in Acts 12 helps us with that. So Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to be. If you want to open up a Bible and follow along, if you didn't bring a Bible, you want a paper one, you don't want to have the, uh, the phone in front of you, whatever, there should be a hardback blue one under a seat by you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there are some paperback Bibles that you can have out in our lobby in that uh, cool looking wood little nook that says information and resources. You can grab anything out of there. It's all for free. Uh, if somebody leaves their Bible there on the shelf, it's fair game. Okay. <laughs> It says information and free resources. The Bible is the best resource you can get. So if you see a nice leather one there, grab it. Um, just kidding. Maybe ask first. Okay, <laughs> Acts 12. Now, here's the context for this. The, the context for Acts chapter 12. We're going to read the whole chapter. right? So you can, if you get nothing else in the church today, you read a whole chapter of the Bible together. Um, it's set in the context of sort of increasing persecution that's going on in the church. And so this is going to open up with the sort of inability... To do, for God's people to do anything to deliver themselves or ourselves, right? That's, that's what we start with at the beginning of Acts chapter 12, and then it's going to move on to this display of strength, uh, really in the middle of like what seem like helpless circumstances uh, that Christians are in. And so we're going to read Acts 12. I'll read it aloud. You can follow along. I'm going to read from the ESV. Uh, whatever translation you have will work, though. This is what it says. 
About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in, ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, and when they, opened they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined his sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let me pray. Jesus, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories that are here in our scriptures to encourage us. And we ask that you would just illuminate what you want us to see out of this text this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're wondering why we're reading these big chunks of the scripture, part of it is my secret plan to actually have read the entire book of Acts as a family together on Sundays by the time we finish this series. So if you're here every week, you're going to hear the whole book of Acts, and that's my secret plan to get us reading the Bible a little bit, right? Uh, now, in order to understand the persecution going on in this text, we need to understand who this King Herod is. So King Herod's father, Aristobulus... Well, nobody reacted, so I'm going to go with that pronunciation. He had been murdered by his own father, who's called Herod the Great, uh, this King Herod's grandfather. So if you know the Christmas story, uh, Herod the Great was the ruler who had ordered the slaughter of the innocents that we talk about many times at 
Christmas time, uh, at the birth of Christ, he said, kill all the male babies. This is this Herod's grandfather. Uh, and after the death of this Herod's father, uh, our Herod of Acts 12 is sent to Rome to be educated. And so he ends up growing, uh, becoming close friends with the imperial family, with the Roman emperor's family. And then because he's basically kind of growing up as a playboy, uh, he has a lifestyle in which he racks up crazy amounts of debt and he flees to Palestine in AD 23 to escape the creditors who are coming for him because he owes money. Uh, and so there in Palestine, he actually lives in humility. He lives in poverty uh, under the rule of his uncle Herod Antipas. And when he gets back to Rome, he's then imprisoned by the emperor who at the time is Tiberius uh, because this Herod in Acts 12 has made some critical remarks against him, and so he's in prison. And so at this point, uh, his life has pretty much hit like rock bottom, right? Owes a bunch of people money, he's in prison, can't do anything about it. There's not much going on for this Herod. But then when Emperor Tiberius dies and Herod's, this Herod's childhood friend Caligula comes to power, uh, this Caligula frees him from prison and also gives him enough gold to pay off his debts and become wealthy again. So he goes from really bad to really good uh, in the world standards, right? And so soon this Herod is named ruler of some of the Palestinian provinces. Uh, and then another childhood friend, Claudius, succeeds Caligula, and Herod becomes ruler of Judea and Samaria. So this sort of soap opera lifestyle of intrigue and murder uh, had really been all he had ever known. So that's who this Herod is. He, he was... He was the over-the-top stereotype of a politician. This guy is a snake, okay? When he's with the Romans, he did as the Romans did. He's Jewish by uh, ethnicity, but not by practice or conviction. But when he's with the Jews, he acts like a Jew. Do you notice in our text, he killed somebody, and when he saw that it pleased people, he went to do it again to another innocent person. Uh, there's records that show that during some of the Jewish feasts, Herod would do things to look extra religious and extra pious. He would basically do anything to maintain his popularity with the Jewish people. However, he saw that little sect of the Jews that had become Christians, who are the first time you'll remember called Christians at Antioch, who are called the way. Uh, he saw them as divisive, and he thought that their activities are going to create uh, disturbance among the people. And so this is where we start here in verse 1, right? We read it a minute ago. About that time, King Herod, uh, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And again, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, this is pretty sick stuff. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. And it says, this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, meaning Peter... Herod put Peter in prison. So James is executed with the sword, and that's not an accident that he gives you that detail. He's executed with the sword because for these Jews, James had become an apostate. He was believing something different than the Jews believed. He had abandoned, in their view, the Jewish faith for this new Christianity thing. And according to the Mishnah, which is sort of the, the written version of Jewish oral law, uh, the sword has to be used to execute murderers and apostates. So this action by Herod, really, because he follows that, gets him even more popularity with the Jews. So put yourself as a member of the church in Jerusalem, right? Uh, James, the apostle John's brother, has just been killed with a sword. Peter has been thrown in a prison, destined for the same thing. 
And so God's people, the church in Jerusalem, how are they feeling? Completely powerless, completely helpless. Think of how especially hard this would have been for the Apostle John, right? We know from the Gospels that he and James spent a lot of time together. Jesus even had a nickname for the two of them. They are the Sons of Thunder. So they have this like co-nickname. That's when you know you're like really friends with somebody when other people call you a nickname for the two of you, right? And so with the sudden word of basically an insane tyrant, James is gone. He's just gone. Killed with a sword. That, that has to have shaken John the Apostle to his core. And now Peter, in the same boat as James was, and so the church was certainly in shock. I don't know if you've ever been part of a church where something really terrible happens, uh, tragedy happens, but there's sort of a corporate shock that can happen to a group of people. And so I imagine that the church in Jerusalem, or at least a big chunk of them, are going through this. They, they, nobody expects this to happen to one of uh, they're leaders, right? Nobody expects to, to just be without the leader in this kind of way. And so the authorities then imprisoned Peter also. And as soon as the Feast of Unleavened Bread was over, and, and the reason is because executions aren't permitted during the Passover, um, there, there would also be probably a mock trial, just like there was for Jesus, just like there probably was for James, and Peter would join James in being executed by the sword. And so here we have the Jerusalem church, exhausted, overwhelmed, traumatized, helpless, right? There's nothing they can do. And also, it's Passover week, which don't forget is the same week that Christ had been murdered. And yes, he was resurrected, but still, imagine yourself there. You're making some grim connections to this period of time, right? This is a difficult week for them. So what we see in verse 5 is one of the hallmarks of the paradoxical way of the kingdom as we wait for its fullness here on earth. All the church does is pray, but all they could do was pray. That's all they could do, right? We've all felt this way, maybe as followers of Jesus. You, you get that phone call, you get that diagnosis, you go through that unemployment, you see a friend or a loved one just running headlong towards sin and destruction, or maybe take it from the personal note and move it to the big picture, right? You see just kind of the mayhem and the evil and the sinfulness happening in our communities and even in our nation, right? And you feel what? Helpless, because you are helpless. You can't change people's hearts. And to those outside the family of God, this is weakness. This looks like weakness. But by the standards of the world, the Christians in Acts should have been doing something, right? They should have been, by, by the standards of the world, they should have been planning a revolt. They should have been uh, going to kidnap somebody. They should have been doing something. What good is praying really going to do, right? But as we know from later on in the New Testament, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. This is when he shows off in the middle of despair. And so here in Acts, what do they do? Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, the Greek word there that gets translated, at least in the ESV, as earnest comes from a word uh, that means to stretch or to strain. Have you ever felt strained in prayer? Like you were working? That's what's going on here. They're straining in prayer. One commentator says they are praying with agony. 
If one of our closest brothers or sisters in Christ, like somebody that we really knew, not just somebody that we read about on a website that was facing execution for their faith, but like somebody that we had shaken their hand and hugged them and had dinner with them and know their face for years, if they were awaiting execution, I would hope that we would strain in prayer for them as well, right? We would pray with anguish. So we can get this because Herod's power in this moment is irresistible, There is nothing you can do to stop. The sword uh, had already fallen on the neck of one of the church's most important leaders, and it's going to happen again. And yet, this church seems to either be undeterred or they just don't know what else to do. And so they do something that looks to the world simple and foolish. The church strains in prayer on behalf of Peter. So we get to verse 6, and the moment has arrived, right? It's, it's the hour. It's the time. Passover is over, and now Herod can kill Peter, verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Notice Herod's going to bring him out for his mock trial in the middle of the night like they did to Jesus. Illegal, but they're going to do it. I love to mention, though, that Peter is sleeping between the two guards. No chance am I asleep between two guards if I'm there, right? I'm way too anxious to be sleeping between guards. But Peter somehow seems so at peace with whatever God decides to do with him that he's able to just sleep and await whatever comes next. Imagine that level of intimacy and trust you have with God our Father. A little bit like Jesus sleeping in the boat in the middle of a storm, right? Peter's just sleeping between two guards. Now, Herod wants to make sure Peter, because he knows Peter's important in this new movement, does not somehow escape. Verse 4 in my translation says that Peter was guarded by four squads or squadrons. Uh, These squadrons are made up of four soldiers each. Yeah, somebody said 16. Quicker at math than me. Four squadrons of four soldiers are guarding him. Now, not all at once. But because we know that Roman soldiers stand guard in three-hour shifts. So this means that there are always at least four soldiers guarding Peter. Just Peter. Not like the whole prison, but just Peter. And so Herod also takes an extra step by chaining Peter to two soldiers instead of one, which is normally what's done. So normally in this kind of thing, you'd chain the prisoner to one soldier and three of them then would watch. But here he does two and two. And so there are two soldiers chained to Peter, and the other two soldiers kept watch outside of his cell. And really, verse 11 shows us sort of the the communal mindset of the Jews. What it shows is that everyone in Jerusalem basically already assumed, they already figured that Peter is a dead man walking. He's already done for. No one is prepared for the display of power that's going to come. Sometimes we miss the drama of these situations because we read this and it's just like words on a page that happened where a long time ago, whatever. But this happened in the real world that you and I live in. This is a historical account. But if we can put ourselves into this story, we really can get a sense at the shock and the power of it. Like we can make sense out of how they didn't open the door. Look at what happens in verse 7. And behold... An angel of the Lord. So whenever you read in your Bible, behold, an angel of the Lord, something crazy is about to happen in the Bible, okay? And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to Peter, and a light shone in the cell. 
he, the angel, struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. I was, when I was preparing this week, I thought, ooh, I'm going to use that when my kids are teenagers. Strike them on the side and say, get up quickly. It's in the Bible, right? <laughs> so there's five things here that happen in this verse when the angel shows up, right? First, the angel somehow brings some kind of light into the cell. Maybe the angel's glowing, I don't know. But somehow he brings light. Secondly, he strikes Peter. So Peter is bound and asleep. He's sound asleep and he's bound. And so he, he probably didn't love it. You ever been whacked while you're sleeping? That's what this word means. It, it's, that's not the way we like to be woken up. Third, the angel tells him, get up quickly. All of us have to get up quickly, don't we? No, not me. And fourth, we see that Peter's chains fall off. So this is all happening in quick succession. And five... Uh, we, we can assume that Peter must have been, like you and I, pretty groggy. Why? Because the angel has to tell him, kind of like he has to tell him how to get dressed. Okay, Peter, now put on your clothes and put on your sandals, wrap your cloak around you, and let's go. Right? So Peter is in kind of that middle of waking up stupor here. And he obeys, but we see that he's in a bit of disarray. I love this humanity in the Bible. And Peter went out, he, Peter, went out and followed him, the angel, and Peter did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. He's so asleep between these two guards that an angel comes to rescue him, and he's like, this is a dream. So he's confused, right? But then there's this growing sense of awareness. There's this growing awareness of reality for Peter. And I imagine he rubs his eyes. He kind of adjusts his cloak, right? And everything's starting to register with him. Look at the beginning of verse 11. When Peter came to himself. I hope you have that moment every morning. You wake up and you come to yourself at some moment, right? You become aware of the day and of what's going on. And so his chains fall off. He walks right on by the two guards chained to him. He walks right past the two other guards. The iron gate swung open, right? The Greek word that's translated of its own accord is automate, which is automatically. And remember, Peter's never seen this before. Nobody has garage door openers. He's never seen a gate just open itself before. So I imagine that Peter is beginning to feel some adrenaline flowing out, like, whoa, this is, this is happening. And once he gets outside, he looks up, and what does it say? The angel's just gone. And so Peter is just there on the streets of Jerusalem, probably rubbing his wrists a little bit, kind of wiping his eyes, maybe adjusting his tunic, making sure his sandals are on his feet. And this is when he comes to himself and grasps what really has just happened. This is wild. So here is what's really important for us to see in this story. I think Peter's experience really teaches us the true nature of what is our strength as a church, no matter how grim life might appear. And this morning, there are congregations that I know the pastors of who life feels pretty grim because maybe their living room is still full of water or the power is not back on or whatever, right? It's feeling pretty rough right now. No matter how grim life might appear, God and his angels are present. They're there. They're ministering somehow, and he can deliver us anytime God wants to. He could. We have to hold that tension that God could have delivered James, but he didn't, and he could have delivered Peter, and he did. And one of the ways that we hold that tension is to remember that we're not God. Our, the, the Psalms say our God is in the heavens, and he does what he pleases. 
And so the choice for us is to simply trust and obey like Peter. Before Peter knows uh, he, he's going to be rescued, we see that he's able to trust God so much, right, that he's sleeping between two guards. Don't think that that's in there by accident. Do you trust God like that when you're in the middle of the troubles of life? And then we also see Peter's ability to trust God when an angel just shows up unannounced and says, hey, follow me, put your shoes on, and Peter just does it. This is the attitude we see in the story of the three in the fiery furnace, if you know that story from your Old Testament, right? I know that God can. I believe that he will. But even if he doesn't, I'll worship him because I trust him more than I trust my own understanding. And he can do with me whatever he wants because whatever he decides to do with me is good. We're able to say that because we read a story like this and we can understand that us not being able to see God at work might just mean that we're just not aware like Peter wasn't aware until he comes to himself and realizes that actually God is at work. Now think about it, right? I know we, we read a story like this and we're like, man, that's so unfair. James dies and Peter doesn't die, but Peter's going to die one day. So in the end, they both end up in the presence of God through death. One is not better or worse than the other. It's just God had things for Peter to continue to do. And so no matter how grim, how perplexing, right? The Apostle Paul says, I am perplexed. No matter how much that is and difficult our situation is, God is present and he is there ministering to you in the middle of it. He can, he can deliver you anytime, anyplace, anywhere. If we could have our eyes opened right now, wherever we are, whatever's going on with us, we would then be able to say, oh, man, I didn't see it, but there, God is at work. Wow, I didn't notice it. I didn't see what was going on. So, Lord, humble me. Let me trust you even more, but you are at work. Let's keep going. Verse 12. So when Peter realizes that the angel had rescued him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark, where many were gathered together and we're praying. So we have a little bit of evidence here that apparently John Mark's family was maybe a little bit wealthier. They had a big home. There's a lot of people inside. And what we see from the text is that there is a servant, right? So many of them are probably praying. What kind of prayers do you think they're probably praying? They're, some of them are probably praying that Peter will die courageously, right? They're, that's what's going to happen. Maybe they're praying that he'll be a witness to those around him before he dies, Lord, to the soldiers, to the government officials, maybe even to the fellow prisoners. Give him the ability to share the good news of Jesus, right? That's how I would be praying. But there had to be at least a few there who dared to pray, God, you delivered Daniel from the lion's den. You delivered David from Saul. Now deliver Peter. Come on, Lord, deliver him. Right? They're straining in prayer. They're begging God, don't let him die, Lord, like James. We need Peter. We want Peter. We don't want to lose him too, Lord. Please deliver him. Somebody was praying that, and they were praying fervently. They're straining, and just as they're doing that, just as they're straining in prayer, they hear, they hear a knock, and we get kind of a little bit of a humorous account. Look at it, verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Now, she's probably a kid. She's probably a little kid. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but kids do this with doors. 
they get excited and they're like, oh my gosh, so-and-so is here. And you're like, well, open the door. And that's what happens here, except they don't believe her. Rhoda hears Peter's voice. She gets so excited. She runs to announce his arrival and she forgets to open the door. And Peter's like, ah, still here, right? At first, the others say that she's crazy. And then they switch to this weird theory. I don't know if you noticed it in there, but they switch to this theory that Peter's dead and it's his angel or his spirit. Like, Rhoda, hey, we're praying. Can you please be quiet? Don't bother us with the answer that we've been asking for who's at the door. Right? I have so done this. I wonder if any of us have done this. You pray for something, God actually answers it. Maybe in a, little, in a way you didn't see coming, and you have a hard time believing that God did what you actually prayed to him to do. Or maybe this is what's more common. For me, this is way more common, that I allow my faithlessness to drive my prayer life, and so I don't actually ask God to do something wild like this. I don't trust him enough to pray, Lord, no, you can do this. Will you do this, Lord? In this story, I'm the guy praying that God would, would maybe give Peter a painless death. Why? Why? Because they have lost sight, maybe those people who are praying that, of what they can ask God. Instead of praying, Lord, you can do it. You created you can do anything, Lord. Rescue Peter. And James 4.2 says this. You do not have because you do not ask. God can do anything he wants. But as we read the scriptures, as we see who God is, we learn that there are some things that God only does as an answer to prayer. He could do anything he wants to do. And yet, he will sometimes wait for us to ask. So are you asking? Are you asking him to rescue Peter? One commentator said this about the prayers in the story. As a result of their fervent intercession, God was free to act in unusual and remarkable ways. Now, I know this sounds kind of weird to me to say, even say this, and it might sound kind of wild to you to say it like this, but are you freeing up God to act in unusual and remarkable ways in your life? Yeah, I know he's, he's free to do it, but are you praying that way? Where do you need to see a breakthrough in a relationship, in your job, in physical healing? Where do you need to see that? Ask him. Ask him the real thing you want. Get other Christians around you to strain with you in prayer. And then trust God and his timing and his wisdom. It's both. It's a tension we walk in. Jesus walked in that tension, right? Lord, if it's possible, take this from me. But not my will, yours. And as this chapter of Acts concludes, we, we see God yet again show his concern and his care for the Jerusalem church. So he, he saves Peter, and then he's going to deal with King Herod in a really unforgettable way. So because of Peter's deliverance, Herod has the guards executed. And somebody who shouted out 16, but that 16 guards lost their lives. Right? Don't just gloss over that. 16 people died because a tyrant was embarrassed. And because of that, he also leaves for Caesarea, again, probably because he's embarrassed. And 20 to 23 in chapter 12 tell us what happens next. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. 
On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Uh, if you read Josephus' account, who's a Jewish historian of this, his royal robe was so like shiny and glimmery, it was like blinding people in the sun. And Herod loved it. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not a man. And instead of doing what any of us should do, if somebody starts saying, you have the voice of God and not a man, you say, absolutely not. I'm a person, just like you. Right? Remember what happened when Peter shows up and somebody bows to him? He says, whoa, 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 stand up. I'm a man just like you. But Herod doesn't do that. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. There's a bit of divine poetry here because the same Greek word that's used when the angel struck Peter to get him up is the same word that's used when the angel struck Herod and he ultimately goes down to death. Maybe it's the same angel. Herod suffers a horrendous, don't Google it if you have a weak stomach. If you're wondering, like, what does that mean? I'm just telling you, don't do it if you have a weak stomach. So what are we to learn from this story? What can we walk away with? Well, some of us just need to be reminded of who we belong to. Do you know and love Jesus? Do you walk with him? You are adopted into the family of God. Some of us are just in the rut of the daily grind of life in this broken world, and we've lost sight of the reality that we, through the Holy Spirit, have access to the power of God on our behalf. We do. We are God's children, and God's children will never be orphaned, and you will never be left without what you need. God is in control, and he has promised to never abandon us, and he cannot break his promises or he ceases to be God. And so the question is, do you believe that God is in control? Do you believe that God wants to display his power on our behalf when we strain in prayer, when we fervently ask him? Does this mean that we, we never face devastation? No. We just read that James was killed by the sword, right in this story. Tragedy and grief are part of this life, and yet also part of this life is joy and unexpected victory. Notice that the church doesn't stop praying and believing fervently after James is killed. But instead, they're fervent in their prayer. So I hope, I hope that today, you're, you're, if you know and love Jesus, that your fervency is just rekindled through this story. If you need resources to know how to pray, there's a prayer room over there that's got a bookshelf full of books about how to pray, some classics. But more important than the bookshelf in the prayer room is what's in the prayer room for you to use to pray, which is the chairs and the kneeling pads and just the space itself. And what I mean is more important than how to pray is that you just pray. Just start. Just do it. Just come fervently to God. If you don't know what to say, just say, Lord, I don't know what to say. I've got no words. God's invitation to us today as we read this story of Peter from Acts 12, I think is to just start or maybe to just restart to pray, right? Pray. Are you not sure how? Get some help, but just pray and pray fervently. You don't have to have the right words. God will figure out what you need. He's a good father and he loves you. Trust him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for uh, these stories that we can read and recount what you have done. We sang today, you've done great things. And you've been with us in the not so great.
great times. So, Father, we trust you. And we, we need you and we need your power in our lives. Would you, would you just remind us this week, would we be led to pray, whether that be just a little bit more than we have before? And, Father, most importantly in all of this conversation about prayer, would you make our prayer not something we do that we think will appease you or get you to do what we want, but so that we can get you. We just want you. We just want to be in your presence. And as part of that, you have told us to bring our request to you. So, Father, I ask that you'd make us a people who are ready to pray fervently for the thing that we think is impossible, because with God, nothing is impossible. And so would you make that our hearts cry this week? We, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.